Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. happening everybody and welcome to episode 26 of the Talking Chop podcast. I am your host Brad Roland and today I have a special guest with me. Uh, you will know him from his Twitter and radio accolades. Uh, he is Grant McCauley from 92.9 The Game here in Atlanta. What's going on Grant? Not too much. How are you guys doing? I'm good man. Uh, just uh, living the dream over here. It's uh, I should tell people that we're recording this uh, midday on Saturday so if something breaks before you hear this either on Saturday night or Sunday afternoon, uh, don't scream at us because we, we don't know that it happened. Uh, but aside from that, we should be good, and uh, it's always good to talk Braves baseball, man. I always enjoy it, and obviously I spend a lot of time doing it, so I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, you. Uh, this, is your, this is your gig, so uh, I'll defer to you uh, on, on most things here. Um, I guess the first thing that I've been uh, kind of been asked about a lot lately, we will get into some news that's happened this week, but I wanted to ask you right off the top uh, your feelings on this since we've been hearing a lot from the fan base. What do you think about the way that uh, the team has performed under Brian Snicker? There's been a lot of uh, a positive momentum about you know Snicker potentially getting the full-time job because of how well the Braves have played and the way that they have played recently. Uh, what are you hearing around there being the insider that you are, and what do you think about his uh, performance thus far and what it means for uh, you know 2017 and beyond potentially? Well, I mean, first and foremost, I have a tremendous amount of respect for Brian Snicker, having known him for a number of years and, you know, going up to Gwinnett, chatting with him up there as he's been an integral part of getting these prospects ready for taking that next step. So I think that he walked in the door with a really good relationship with a, a good percentage of that team, both the veteran players that he had played or had managed before, guys like Jeff Francoeur and some others, and obviously guys who have been making that move from AAA to the majors over the last couple of years. I don't think I've heard anyone say a bad word about Brian Snitker, and and that's refreshing. you know. And it wasn't that Freddie Gonzalez was overly criticized behind the scenes or anything of that nature. It was just one of those things that you could just tell that there was a, a pre-existing you know, relationship that went a little bit deeper uh, with, with Snit, and I think that's a good thing. And I think it's important to kind of temper the expectations when it comes to you know, what's going to happen in 2017 and where Brian Snitker may or may not fit into that equation. Because, I, again, I don't have anything disparaging to say whatsoever about what he's been able to do with this team because it obviously has its shortcomings. It's not been a complete 25-man roster that's built to compete. A lot of this has been, you know, kind of pick yourself up by the bootstraps and try to get over what was a horrendous start to the season. I mean, I don't know if I've seen an unluckier team over the first month or so, in addition to being deficient in a few positions. So it was like the perfect storm of everything bad happened in the first six or seven weeks of the season. And since then, since late May, they really haven't been all that bad. And I think that's kind of the nicest way to put it. It's it's not a championship caliber club. It's not a wild card contender. But it's a team that has, I think, performed a little bit closer to what the front office was hoping when they said, we want a competitive team this year. So 
I don't know if you give all that credit to Brian Snitker, but I think certainly some of it goes to him. But I've, I've said this time and time again over the past couple of months, when they played well, when they played poorly, and people ask, I really think they're going to open up this search. They're going to interview, I would imagine, somewhere between four and six candidates, both internal and external, and make a decision on who the best man is to lead them, not just for the next year or two, but hopefully for a long-term run as they put all the pieces out on the board and get this club back to where people were accustomed to seeing it over the past couple of decades. Yeah, I think that's the right move, just because I, I agree with you. I think Snicker, I, every, you know, I'm not as close to it as you are being in the clubhouse and so on, but everything I've heard about Snicker has been positive the entire time, and it's not as if I've had huge problems with the way he's managed this team, but I do, uh, I'm on board with opening it up, um, especially outside the organization, um, even if it's a name that nobody has heard um, to this point that the Braves end up targeting or end up zeroing, zeroing in on uh, when that comes. I just want the best guy. Uh, I think the organization, especially under Copy and John I don't think they're going to be uh, super close-minded with, uh, with the way this uh, managerial search looks. Uh, I think Snickers right. should have a shot at it at least, um, you know, be, be a guy who, who they interview and um, give every consideration to, but it should be uh, a, a situation where they're not uh, limiting themselves because this is, this is a big hire. I think everybody would, would, would agree on that as the uh, you know, new ballpark and sort of the new, this new uh, regime uh, takes hold with their first you know, major managerial hire. This is a, this is a big one for them. Yeah, it's a huge step, and it's one of the pieces that you have to put in place, and you want to have the right guy when it comes to you know long-term planning, which is certainly what this rebuild has been all about. Whether or not they've wanted to call it a rebuild from day one, you know that's really semantics at this point. I mean, they've done a tremendous job when it comes to building the foundation for the future. I mean, we've seen you know, a farm system that was in the bottom, not even the bottom third, probably the bottom two or three in all of baseball, just had a couple of nice pieces and, and a whole lot of nothing. And they've done in about 18 to 24 months, a complete overhaul of that with two tremendous drafts, some very good international signings, and obviously a lot of trades that have infused this organization with talent. Now what I think you need is a guy that is able to handle the young players. And as they bring in veteran players, we saw Matt Kemp come in via trade, obviously Freddie Freeman, Julio Tehran, some others. Uh, they could figure into this depending on what they do in free agency. Um, it's just all about finding the right guy that you feel like is going to be the right leader. And that's a huge piece. And and I know folks like to look at the numbers and say, well, you know, you know that's going to be the, the overriding factor. And it's, it's almost like a good manager you don't notice. A bad manager, you want to blame him for everything that goes wrong in a particular night, whether it's the bullpen or, or whatever it may be. But it's a mix of a lot of different things, and I, and I think sometimes you know fans or, or folks might forget because you just get so used to seeing it and you're detached from it, just kind of watching it on TV or sitting in the stands. But you know these are actual people, and there there is that whole dynamic that is extremely important when it comes to having again the continuity that brings a club together. And I think that's what they're going to be looking for in whoever manages this club in 2017 and beyond. Absolutely, and I think that's important for people like uh, people like myself, uh, people on the on the internet. Largely, they want to just look at uh, it's all X's and O's, so to speak, with managerial candidates. But you have to have a sure. guy who can lead the organization, uh, who can lead uh, behind the scenes. That was something that Bobby was famous for, and even Freddie got a lot of credit for at times. Was just being a players' manager that people wanted to run through a wall for, and that's uh, it's not all. It sometimes goes beyond um, what you actually see on the field. And I think people, uh, myself included, are uh, sometimes uh, forgetful of that fact that there's a lot more to managing than there is uh, with uh, you know filling out a lineup card or even man bullpen management and that kind of stuff. It's, it goes way beyond that, and that's important for sure. 
It really does. And you know, talking to former players that played under Bobby Cox, I mean, going all the way back into the into the 90s and before, I mean, I've talked to Dale Murphy a couple of weeks ago, and, and he credits Bobby Cox for you know, saving his career, moving him out from behind the plate, you know, first to first base and then into the outfield. And, you know, I asked him, what was it like playing for Bobby? And he said he was a huge an instrumental factor in, in me making it as a major leaguer. He, he said I could have been done in the first two or three years because this catching thing wasn't going to work out. So, you know, he, Bobby Cox really gave him an opportunity and also gave him the support that he needed to, to realize the talent and the potential that was there. And I think that's incredibly important. And obviously, you know, guys who played for him in the 90s, it wasn't always about the strategy with Bobby Cox. And I think he managed a lot with his gut rather than, you know, making decisions that were, you know, clearly marked by looking at, you know, any kind of advanced numbers you want to look at or, or scouting reports in some cases. He just went with the guys he felt like were going to be the best. And for quite some time, the Braves were able to, as Freddie Gonzalez used to say, out-talent people. And when you can do that, you're going to win a lot of games, but it doesn't mean you're going to win all of the games. But yeah, Bobby Cox was a guy that was universally respected because he made you uh, feel... I guess motivated in ways that maybe some other managers had a hard time getting out of their players because there was a, a complete and total devotion because this guy believed in you and he wanted to put his players in a position to succeed. And I think there's a lot to be said for that. Absolutely. Uh, with that out of the way, I wanted to get your thoughts on some news this week. Uh, a couple of, uh, you know, relatively peripheral uh, transactions, but ones that uh, I know our listeners and our readers are kind of been diving into. The first one I wanted to bring up is the, the Braves called up uh, Jason Hirsch and Akil Morris this week. Hirsch is uh, a former first-round pick of the Braves who's had some issues but is uh, beginning to turn the corner. And uh, Morris was acquired from the Mets in the Kelly Johnson trade earlier this season. Uh, what are your thoughts on these guys and whether they can be impactful guys, you know, for the rest of this year, of course, this year be kind of being uh, secondary to the future with both of these players. Yeah. You know, talking to John Coppola a few, few weeks ago, really uh, almost a couple months ago, I, I knew when the trade deadline was coming, that this was going to be a time that the club was going to, I think, change a little bit in the dynamic of, you know, who's going to be on this 25 man roster. And it was going to start being, as you get into August, which we are now, obviously, you know, barreling towards September, the opportunity for some young players to come up and establish themselves, or at the very least, get their first taste of what it's like to be in the major leagues, get that next challenge. And he said it would be foolish for us to block these guys with you know, veteran players and stop gaps when we have the opportunity to find out what we have and give these guys a chance to come up and you know, show us what they have. And I think that's the case for Akil Morris and Jason Hirsch. And when you look at Morris, obviously the strikeouts jump right off the page. The walks are kind of right behind that. But I do think that he's the kind of arm that, you know, the Braves are looking for when it comes to, you know, just dynamic talents in that bullpen. We've seen what Mauricio Cabrera could do. And when you looked at the numbers, you might have kind of shook your head and said, well, he walks too many guys and he doesn't strike out enough guys and he may throw hard, but he's not going to succeed. And a lot of people kind of dismissed it as the hard thrower who doesn't know where he's, where it's going. But and give him credit and give Roger McDowell and Marty Reed credit for the amount of work that they've done to get Mauricio Cabrera to a point where he's a late inning weapon. And I think that that's a possibility for Jason Hirsch, who certainly throws hard, good breaking stuff, um, good sink on the fastball. And then obviously Morris has uh, a good arsenal as well and was just plucked right off of the Mets uh, for Kelly Johnson. So I like both these guys. I don't know that it you know speaks to 
you know, immediate success that Mauricio Cabrera's had, if that's going to be, you know, a, a direct correlation to what can happen for these two guys. But it certainly has me hopeful in that you've got these young players getting these kinds of opportunities. And I think that the final six weeks of the season, there should be a good amount of that. And it's just good to see that the Braves are continuing to think forward and not just being stuck in that stopgap mode where we would have had to watch Roberto Hernandez for three or four more starts before they finally decide to pull the plug. They just went ahead and yanked the cord and, you know, hopefully get Julio Tehran back and that stabilizes your rotation. But yeah, I mean, it opens up a spot for a young player and I think it's good to see. And I hope, hopefully we're going to see more of that. I think I speak for everyone when I say we don't, we, we do absolutely do not want to see Roberto Hernandez for three more, three, four more starts. Correct. Uh, but uh, on these guys, and I, and I want to ask you about Cabrera in a second, but on these guys, Hirsch, um, you know, kind of was a guy who was on the, on the verge of almost fizzling out. He'll, he's almost 25 years old. Uh, again, a former first-round pick of the Braves, but finishes minor league stint with a 27-inning scoreless streak that kind of has yep. uh, piqued the interest of some people. Um, so that's that's what the reference to him coming around the corner potentially. Obviously, you want first-round picks to kind of end up as starters, but I think that's, that ship has probably sailed for Hirsch. And uh, if you can get any sort of value out of him, that's huge. And you mentioned with Morris, the strikeout stuff is is very real. Uh, I, I don't worry as much about guys um, who walk a ton of people if they have that kind of strikeout upside. Uh, obviously, at the major league level, you, you can't get by with walking six or seven guys per nine innings. That doesn't really work. But if you have the upside and stuff that he has, and you know they got him for Kelly Johnson in a year where Kelly was not going to serve that much of a role the rest of the season in terms of on a competitive team. So it's surplus value that you get out of that trade. It's another one of those copy specials where he flips a one-year guy into a real asset in Morris, and that's it's always fun to see the uh, sort of the the benefits being reaped of a, of a deal like that. Yeah, it is, and I like that copy special is really what a lot of these deals have been where you see no value in what the Braves are trading away. They're able to cobble something together and seemingly get back something that's at the very least a useful piece or a possible you know, lottery ticket, if you will, or, or another stock they're buying into when it comes to minor league players. That's kind of what I liken them to, and I think Morris is certainly one of those guys that you'd want to invest in in terms of you know just a guy that could be useful in the uh, in the bullpen. When I look at Hirsch, yeah, 27 and a third inning scoreless streak uh, finished off for Mississippi and Gwinnett before coming up. He doesn't strike out a ton of guys, but 22 punch outs and 27 innings is certainly acceptable. Eight walks over that span, 15 hits. I mean, the guy has not allowed a run since, what, the second week or third week of June. So he's had a pretty good run. And I think that even being kind of an advanced age, I would say, for double A, but still kind of the average age or a little bit younger, actually, in triple A, he was getting enough uh, competition that would make me think that some of these results that he's getting are an indication that he could have some success. And I think that's what the Braves are looking at in terms of, you know, he may not be that starter. He was a guy that obviously had to get, get over Tommy John early in the career and just never really seemed to put up the numbers consistently in that rotation. But again, he does have a big arm. And at some point, you got to try to find that value that you were alluding to. And I think that the bullpen could be a good spot for him. He may not be a closer, but... You start putting together five, six, seven guys in a bullpen that all throw hard, all get results, and all come in and do their job, and all of a sudden, you know, you're shortening the game. And even if your rotation is not exactly where you want it to be this year and next, you've got the arms in the bullpen that can cover some of those innings. And I think that's going to be an important thing for the Braves. 
For sure. Uh, I wanted to ask you about Cabrera since you brought him up. There's been a couple of uh, questions that have come in to us recently about um, Cabrera being a potential future closer. Uh, it's easy to see why you people would think that because of the, just how hard he throws. You mentioned that before. He's a guy who regularly hits triple digits on the radar gun, which you just don't see that often. Um, what do you think about the scenario in which you know you have Aurelius Vizcaino, uh, who has had a bunch of health issues, but and you know currently a health issue. Um, you have him in, in the fold already, but a guy like Cabrera, what you know, it's tough to always forecast this, but if you were to try to peg it down in terms of uh, the early front runner for the closer job in 2017, is Cabrera in the mix there? Are you talking about a guy who has a chance to kind of reach that role down the line, or is it a situation where if this guy, you know, is in the, in the organization and healthy, that he's the guy? I think they have a, a really good decision to make right there in that both of those guys, I think, could perform in the role. We've seen Cabrera do it, but obviously he was not quite right over the past, what, month or so leading up to his DL stand, and hopefully that's behind him. But, you know, when he's going, I mean, he's he's a tremendous uh, late-inning asset. I mean, I think it was 50 or 60 appearances dating back to last year that he, you know, before the struggles, really had put together a good sample size to let you know that he was a guy that could pitch the late innings in the major leagues, whereas Cabrera has come up. And, you know, the first five or six outings, you saw the fastball, obviously, you didn't see the strikeouts, and you just kind of wondered, well, this is really strange to see a guy that throws this hard not being able to get those results. And all of a sudden, you know, just a, a switch got flipped, and he's been tremendous. I mean, you, guys are going to give up runs. That's going to happen every once in a while. But, you know, he's gotten right back on the horse, and he's been a just a dynamic arm and something that's exciting in a season like this to watch. So I, I certainly think he has closer potential. Any guy that throws – 103 almost 104 miles an hour Which is, is a guy that I, I, would, I would look at in that role yeah i mean i posted a stat last night uh on twitter that you know, according to Statcast, mauricio cabrera is averaging 100.8 miles per hour on his fastball for comparison or chapman who has thrown a few more innings is averaging 100.7 miles per hour on his fastball so when you're up there in the chapman category and by the way they're the only two guys who are averaging triple digit velocity for a fastball you've got a, a pretty good option there at the back end of the bullpen. Conversely, or, or just to add to that, really, um, Arodis Vizcaino is number six in terms of overall average velocity in the major leagues in 2016. He's over 98 miles an hour, right up there with Noah Syndergaard. I think it's 98.3. So, you know, you got some guys that throw hard. The biggest thing is keeping it in the strike zone, you know, punching guys out and having quick and easy innings. And the guy that proves he can do that is a guy that's going to get that ninth inning roll. And the other one? He might just slot into the eighth inning, and some teams are going to have not very much fun trying to scratch out late victories against the Atlanta Braves moving forward. Now, that certainly would not be fun for anyone to face those two guys in successive innings if they're both uh, cooking and healthy uh, down the stretch of uh, next season. Um, one more thing of, of sort of news before we move on to some more uh, some big-picture stuff. Uh, Manny Benuelos was DFA'd uh, earlier this week. Um, and the Braves re-signed Kyle Kubitsa, an old friend um, from the system, in his place. Uh, ben Willows has you know, famously battled a ton of injury stuff and health concerns since uh, really his, since he was sort of a breakout guy a few years ago with the Yankees. Uh, ERA about around five this season um, before he uh, you know, suffered again some more health issues. What do you think about Ben Willows in terms of is he like a guy who's uh, obviously his star is already faded, but a guy who probably won't be able to pitch uh, much going forward really, regardless of where he lands? And is Kubitsa a guy that the Braves, the Braves fans should uh, take note of if they uh, remember him from the past? Well, as far as Benny Benuelos is concerned, and he's a guy that I saw at the height of his star w with the Yankees organization. I saw him in the Florida State League in 2009 and 2010. He was 19 
or 18 and 19 years old back then, uh, respectively in those years. And you could just tell there was something special about this guy. He was hitting 95, 96, um, tremendous off speed stuff. He had a good feel for things, especially when you're talking about an 18 or 19 year old kid. And, you know, this is a guy that, you know, and this has been much talked about Mariano Rivera famously quoted as saying, this is the best pitching prospect I've ever seen. And I don't think those kind of compliments get thrown out there, you know, haphazardly, but that does put a tremendous amount of expectation on a fan base when you start hearing things of that nature, especially when you're talking about, you know, I think hands down the greatest closer of all time. So, you know, Benuelos was a guy that I can totally understand why, despite having the Tommy John and missing, you know, basically the better part of two seasons, why the Braves took a flyer on him trading David Carpenter and Chase and Shreve, who, you know, are not building blocks for the future. Shreve is a, a serviceable lefty reliever, and obviously David Carpenter has kind of fallen on hard times, and you know, injury has really sapped him. Um, so I know why the Braves did the trade. It was just a you know a gamble that didn't necessarily pay off, and the injuries just never seemed to get behind Benuelos, and he never seemed to be able to get himself consistently up over about 89 miles an hour. And unless you have advanced feel, and to the point we've talked about a lot, and you're not walking guys, and you're able to you know, pitch the contact and generate good results, you know, maybe completely and totally, uh, you know, rebuild yourself in terms of, you know, changing what type of pitcher you are. You're not going to get too many opportunities to come up, walk a lot of guys, then also deal with injuries and, and the door continually be open no matter how high your star was at some point. So just kind of time to turn the page, I think, in there at that point. And I hope that Manny's able to get himself back to, you know, some modicum of what he was before, because if he does, you know, he's a special arm, but it seems like that ship might have sailed. But Kibitza, uh, I don't have a lot of thoughts on him other than, you know, he's a guy that's raked a lot of doubles in the minors, never really turned it into home run power. Got a brief taste of the majors last year with the Angels, didn't do a ton. Uh, wasn't hitting a whole lot of AAA in the Pacific Coast League this year, which is kind of an indicator for me that, you know, he's having some struggles. So uh, I'd be interested to see what they do with him. Obviously, he jumps onto the 40-man. They felt he was more useful, and I think that's kind of what Copy and, and John Hart are all about is finding the most useful pieces they can have uh, and, and building organizational depth, which if you look at AAA, there's not a ton of that. So I don't, I don't think it hurts to add him back to the mix. Yeah, for sure. I think Braves fans, longtime Braves fans especially, will remember him from prospect lists and in, in years gone by and recognize the name and, you know, might be really interested. But he's, you know, he's already 26, so I think it's uh, the prospect thing is kind of a, uh, out the window at this point. But uh, because he plays third base, uh, you know, organizationally, it's not a super deep spot at the, at the top. Uh, you, I mean, you have, Rio, you, have, you have Rio Ruiz uh, at AAA, who's kind of your prime third base guy in the high minors. But aside from that, and then obviously on the Major League Club, it's not been the best spot either. So, Adding depth there, uh, there's nothing wrong with that, and especially if they had just kind of resigned themselves to the fact that Banuelos just couldn't get healthy, and the right. velocity that you mentioned uh, is going to be a concern because I don't think he has the the feel that you uh, you said because if he's throwing 89, it's not going to work with the way he used to pitch uh, at, when he was at his peak. And I'll throw this out there too when it, when we talk about third base. I mean, you look at what's going on, especially you know on Friday night, you know Travis Demerit. Um, flexing his power for the first time in a, in a Braves uniform or for Carolina in a Mudcats uniform. And then obviously Austin Riley has been really in the second half, the resurgent power that he's shown makes you feel pretty good that there could be a cornerstone player uh, or, you know, a guy that could play the hot corner anyway, uh, moving forward in the next couple of years. I mean, keep in mind how young he is. So they're not, I don't think going to fast track anybody unless they really just absolutely tear the cover off the ball. But I'm interested to see how Riley continues to develop I mean, and I think that you know, Rio Ruiz being as young as he is, 21, 22 years old this year in AAA, he's been a pretty successful player, but his doubles power 
has never really translated into home runs either. But he's shown very well for himself in AAA this year. The Braves sent him home last year. They wanted to see him really commit himself, you know, get in the best shape he could possibly be in and see where he could come in in 2016. And when he came to spring training, I almost didn't recognize him. I mean, he was just that different looking. You could tell how much he had trimmed down, uh, how hard he had worked. And, and that's, I think, shown this year. It may not be that super you know, across the board, the biggest eye-popping numbers ever. But I think it's a very good indication that he's a guy that's not afraid to put in the work. And I think that's important uh, at that level. And third base, who knows what's going to happen next year. I mean, there's the Martin Prado possibility uh, for a couple of years as some kind of stopgap as they figure it out. And, of course, we know the Braves are not shy about making trades. So uh, this could be the time where we start seeing some of the prospects that we talk about on a regular basis being bundled together. And maybe that – you know, nice player that the Braves are looking for that they're missing at the major league level comes over in a trade rather than all of us staring at free agency, wondering who they're going to sign in a not so exciting class. So there's a lot of possibilities. And third base is something that looking forward long term with Austin Riley there, I'm a little bit more excited about. But Travis Demerit, that's a position he could end up playing long story short. And that may not be the worst thing either. Yeah, for sure. Riley Riley's only 19. You mentioned how young he was. I wanted to say that just so people know. I mean, Riley's a 19-year-old who's really been uh, sort of mashing over the last couple of weeks. It's you know he's a long way away at this point. Um, but Demerit's closer has has you know real power. I don't think it's as crazy power as it was uh, as his numbers would indicate before he came over, just because of where he was playing before he arrived uh, with the Braves organization. But two, those are two guys who are interesting names, and Ruiz being you know again super young uh, for AAA. Do you think um, aside from the trade possible? Do you think Ruiz is a legitimate option to start the year at third base next year? That's something that I know a lot of fans are kind of uh, penciling in if uh, if the Braves don't pull off a sort of a big signing or a big trade. Is that something that you can even see as conceivable? Uh, and would he be able to, you know, at least be a functioning, uh, not you know, below replacement level third baseman there? I think he could be. It'd just be one of those things that you're bringing up one of the youngest players in the major leagues, and you just want to make sure he's ready. And that's been something that the Braves have been pretty committed to when it's the idea of, hey, we've got all these great young players. We want to give these guys opportunities, but we also want to put them in a position to succeed, as I touched on earlier. I mean, you don't want to just bring up guys just for the sake of bringing them up to assuage fans or to, you know, curry favor in in some corners with, you know, folks who aren't too happy about a couple of of not so great seasons. This is a long term play. And John Coppola has said, Look, we know it's painful. It's, it's not fun for him. And I can tell you from my conversations with him, from riding the elevator down after some of these losses the Braves have had, he wears that. He is not happy about it. He doesn't enjoy it. He's not detached from it. You know, It's one of those things where he hates the idea of losing, but it's also staying the course of, what, of where they are with what it is they're doing and what it is they've planned to do. And it seems like you know some of these things are going to start to fall into place. And third base is a big spot for him. I, I know that they realize that, and it doesn't take a, a genius to look at it and say there's got to be some kind of solid production coming out of that position. So if Rio Ruiz can provide that, sure. Um, you know, you look out on the free agent market. I know a couple of people have mentioned uh, Martin Prado quite a bit, and then obviously uh, Justin Turner, I believe, is a free agent. Outside of that, I'm not sure what else is really out there. Nothing. But <laughs> you know, it's it's one of those things where they got to make the best decision they feel like for a particular amount of time. And, and I don't want them to get into a position where, you know, say they sign Martin Prado for four years, akin to what they signed Nick Marquez for, and all of a sudden in year two or year three of that, Martin Prado is kind of in that same like 
gray area that Marcakis was in prior to getting red hot the last couple of months. I might add Marcakis has been a pretty good player. Um, it's, it's just a, a weird position where you almost have to decide, do we want to stick with the youth? Do we want to stay the course? Do we want to sign a veteran player? Or do we want to go out and look for a more dynamic talent that fits us a little bit better and make another trade? And that's the question they're going to have to ask themselves over the winter because, you know, like we've talked about, this is not a great free agent class. There's not a lot out there. There's a couple of very useful, very nice players, but how long do you want them? How long do they fit into your plan? And what's coming behind them that might change that plan in 18 months, 24 months, whatever it is after that, especially when you start talking about long-term contracts? Yeah, third base is going to be uh, very, very interesting as a, as a target position. I think third base and catcher are the two spots that are going to be very weird. But uh, you actually did a segue there for me without knowing that I was going here. But I want to talk about Marcakis a little bit. All right. uh, I noticed I noticed that you were uh, tweeting some positive things about Marcakis this week, and he has been quite good at the plate recently. Um, I guess with the, Matt Kemp, with the Matt Kemp edition, there has been some uncertainty about the future of Marcakis and whether those guys can both be on the roster. Uh, what do you think is the, you know, the most likely scenario for uh, the Braves to move, you know, moving on with both of these guys if they you know, become like a super platoon or if they can both play together or if Marcakis is probably somewhere on the trading block? What do you think that is the scenario that you think is most likely there? And uh, what is Marcakis going to look like in terms of an asset? I think uh, personally for me, you know, he's at least a solid offensive player. Uh, I think the numbers back that up, but you know, with the other with the other issues, the, the defensive lack of range and the, all that kind of stuff, what do you think is the uh, the most likely way that plays out in the outfield with those guys? You know, I've said before that I think we we got very spoiled and for good reason with the kind of defense that Jason Hayward brings to the table every single day. And judging Marquez on the Hayward scale out there really isn't very fair. And that I think, in addition to the fact that yeah, he does not have that same kind of range. It, it compounds the matter where it becomes a little bit more noticeable. But offensively speaking, I think that being over, what, 18, going on, well, at least 18 months removed from that neck surgery, he's in a much better place now. And that was not readily apparent at the start of the year, but he basically last year had a season that was, hey, show up, get 10 days worth of spring training, and come in and play the whole year. And he played pretty much every day, hit 290 on base to about 350. And he was at least a, a maybe a one, one and a half win player, which is certainly acceptable for 11 million bucks. But this year, I, I think he's been much better. The question now moving forward, when you bring Matt Kemp into the picture is, you've got Ender Enciarte, who I personally would not move out of center field. And then you've got Malik Smith, who obviously has played his way into the picture, though he may not be back this year. Um, I don't know what you do with that, but I, I think it's pretty obvious a trade's got to be made somewhere. And I don't want to necessarily go into too many play, you know, too many uh, positions with a platoon in place, and not, not many managers do because the continuity of that is is a little bit wonky. I mean, if you got that one super guy like a Ben Zobrist that you can play at second base or play in left field or play in right field, and you know maybe play him at shortstop if you absolutely had to, that's a different kind of player because offensively speaking, he's an everyday player. I don't know that the Braves are in position to have that just yet, and I don't know that Nick Markakis is necessarily at a place where he needs to be platooned either. So it's it's going to be interesting. You're not going to platoon Matt Kemp. I wouldn't want to platoon Ender Enciarte personally, and I don't think you platoon Markakis either just based on his career track. But then you've got Malik Smith out there, and there's going to be other guys who are going to be coming through the system over the next couple of years that you're going to want to – you know, slot in somewhere, I would assume. You're not going to stop drafting outfielders. So um, I, I really feel like there's a trade that's got to be made there. And the obvious candidate would be Marcakis. 
if he can sell relatively high now that he's putting together a, a Nick Markakis like season, and maybe there's an American League club, possibly the Orioles, that would be interested in you know bringing him back into the fold for a couple of years, and the Braves don't really have to assume too much financially uh, of that. But I think you've committed yourself to Matt Kemp, long story short, and that's really changed the dynamic of the outfield because he's not a cheap player. You were able to you know, move on from Hector Oliveira, save some face, and get a guy that if they can get him you know, into the weight room, get him down about 15 or 20 pounds, back to more prime playing weight. I don't think Matt Kemp's, you know, going to be a guy that is going to deteriorate over the next three years. I think he's a guy that can be a productive player. It's just all about getting back to closer to what he was two or three years ago before the injuries had really taken hold with him. Yeah, for sure. I think it's it's fun to at least cons- uh, you know fun to, fun to consider the uh, platoon of Kemp and Marcakis, but it's also not realistic in any way. I mean, you'd be, no. ta- you'd be talking about paying these guys, you know, almost you know thirty million dollars uh, to be a platoon in one corner outfield spot, and it's because of the fact that Kemp really kills left-handed pitching and doesn't fare so well against right-handed pitching. So I get that, but it's just not going to happen. So that's it's a, it's a pipe dream to be sure. And yeah, uh, I it's think just a lot way of it, too much money in in one spot and. The Braves are, financially speaking, not one of those clubs that can afford to have a $30 million platoon. I mean, I'd yeah, rather spend $30 million for one great player than, than spend $30 million on two you know, average to maybe above average in their platoon splits players. Yeah, if you're the, if you're the Dodgers or the Yankees, you can you know maybe do that, maybe just be uh, spend that excess on to try to maximize that position. But if you're the Braves and you have a relatively fixed payroll, that's not going to work. Uh, and I think a lot of this has to do with how people feel about Malik Smith. If you think Malik Smith is a starting outfielder long term, then obviously it almost speeds up the process in terms of having to make a move quickly. If you don't think Malik Smith is a starter outfielder, which a lot of people don't, a lot of people see a fourth outfielder type of guy in Malik's. Uh, I haven't really made up my mind on that yet, but if you, if I do, I do think that if ideally, if Malik is a starting te- starting level player, it's probably going to have to be in center field. And with NCRT there, it kind of just it's again, it's it's sort of another log jam, and that both those guys need to be playing center to maximize their value with their defensive uh, upside. And uh, you know, neither one of those guys has a corner outfield level bat. I don't think on a on a winning you know high level team. So it, it, there's some decisions to be made for sure, and it'd be easier if the Braves could move on from Marquez. But I'm not sure they want to give him away. I'm pretty sure they don't want to give him away with no, they don't. nothing in return. Yeah, I mean that's. Uh, so you don't want to give him away and pay his salary. I know that much. Um, so it's it's all about what you can get back and how much of that money can, you can uh, have eaten by the other team, et cetera, et cetera. So the possibilities are endless, but something's going to have to be done. I'm, 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 I'm definitely in agreement with you on that much. Yeah, and if, if I can throw this out there as well, when it comes to Malik Smith, and you know, I know folks like to project their lineups moving forward, whether it's 2017, 18, or 19, or whatever it is, uh, you know, for the Braves, Third base becomes a more important position to get some power out of it, especially if you think about Enciarte and you think about Malik Smith and you think about Ozzy Albies as being guys that you'd like to have starting on your team. Those are all guys with very limited power, a lot of speed, good on base skills for the most part, and you know guys that you'd like to have in your lineup. But as far as the kind of hitter they are, just overall, I mean, I know Albies is a switch hitter, but they're kind of the same hitter on the whole at their peak, at the at the best they can possibly be. You know, they're guys that make a living by putting the ball in play, finding their way on base, stealing some bases, running the base as well, and being, you know, table setters. How many table setters can you have in one lineup? I mean, you can put a guys at one and two. You can put a guy at eight. And other than that, in the National League, 
I think it's a lot harder to construct your lineup. So all of a sudden, you again ask yourself, where is the power coming from? You look at first base, there's some. You look at left field with Matt Kemp, there's some. As far as the rest of it goes, what's Dansby Swanson going to be at shortstop? I mean, he's not a power hitting type of guy, but is he a guy that you want batting second? And then all of a sudden, do you have two speedy guys bumped to the bottom of the order because of the way the lineups are set in the big leagues? One fast guy at the top, a good on base guy, you know, in the second spot, hopefully a guy that can do some damage too. Your best hitter hits third primarily. Your cleanup hitter should be able to hit the ball out of the park. Then you wonder what's happening at five and six, and then seven and eight's a couple more fast guys. I mean, this this whole picture has not really come into focus yet. And again, I think this is why there's going to be a, a big um, component of this is going to be some kind of trade or free agent signing that's really going to be that piece that you can look at and say, okay, now the Braves are starting to look more complete offensively. I just don't think we're anywhere close to there yet based on waiting on Swanson and Albies, number one, what you do with Malik Smith or what you do in the outfield in general and what's going to happen at third base. And really, is there a way to get a, a big-time upgraded catcher? And if they're going to do that, are they going to pony up the money that it's going to cost to get a free agent catcher in here that could really be a difference maker? Yeah, the catcher spot is uh, certainly one that we could talk about for you know an hour just on the oh, possibilities yeah. there. Um but the power, the power situation is real. You really need to find power. For as much as um, I like Freddie Freeman, we, and I was going to ask you about him in a second, uh, Freeman's you know had his best power season of his career to this point. And even then, like it's not as if Freddie is an elite power guy. He's more of an all-around hitter. And you're already you know you're lacking in power with those guys that you mentioned and Albies, uh, and Ciarte and Malik. So getting power in one of the corner outfield spots and at third base would be uh, certainly significant uh, moving forward, uh, at least with the guys that the Braves currently are penciling in for full-time roles. Um, as far as catcher is concerned, I have to at least ask you briefly about this, uh, this Brian McCann uh, rumor that John Heyman put forth that the Yankees were asking for uh, Ciarte and Mike Fultonavich for the Braves, and I'm sure they got laughed out of the room with that, uh, that ask. No kidding. Um, you know, I think the McCann stuff's on life support to be sure, and that's something that people talk about a lot. But is that something you would have been on board with uh, adding adding McCann, provided that the Yankees were were paying significant salary? Was that something that you would be interested in if you were the Braves for a long term fix, or are you more apt to see see Atlantic sort of go searching in that free agent market with guys like uh, Wilson Ramos and maybe even Matt Weeders? Well, Wilson Ramos is is at the top of my list, and I'm sure he's at the top of the list of a few other clubs that are out there looking for catchers because he's been able to put everything together this year. And and I do think that at 29, you know, being a couple of years younger than you know Matt Weeders, obviously, and Jonathan Lucroy when he does hit the free agent market, I think Ramos is a guy that I wouldn't mind spending a little bit more money on than obviously you would have before this year, and paying him off of his breakout season even if he's not going to be able to put up quite the same numbers. If he's anywhere close to what he is this year over the next three to four to five years, which is possible, you know, in your late 20s going into your 30s, it's a, a risk worth taking, I think, to explore that and find out exactly how much it's going to cost. Brian McCann, though, I, I look at this and and it, you know, it pains me to see that he's just not the same guy he was, you know, in 2010 and 11. And he hasn't been that guy for a while. I mean, since 2012, Brian McCann's a 235 hitter, is on base percentage floating around just over 300. And slugging wise, yeah, he hits a lot of home runs, but of the 64 home runs I think he'd hit up to the trade deadline, 42 of them had been at Yankee Stadium, which is very, very friendly to left hand hitters in terms of that porch out there. I just don't know that he was going to be able to provide that kind of offensive impact, you know, anywhere else in a, in a more neutral site, if you will. So, it's hard to say. At 32 years old and making, what, $17 million a year, 
or or 15 or 16 million at least, I can't see a, a scenario where the Braves were going to take on anywhere close to that kind of money. I also don't know what the Yankees are thinking if they're imagining that they're going to get a starting level center fielder and a you know potential top of the rotation starter for Brian McCann and not pay Brian McCann's salary. I can't even imagine what they were thinking with that other than, you know, go ahead and ask because, you know, you, you never know that you're going to hear a no until you actually hear it. So maybe that was their thoughts behind that. But either way, uh, McCann for two years, I would have been okay with that. And I think he does add a lot to the dynamic of the, the clubhouse, which is obviously important. But, you know, he's got to be able to produce. And you throw another left-hand bat into this lineup, and then you run into the same problem that the Braves had for a number of years where they just seem to have everything on the left side and not enough on the right side to balance the equation. That was what led them to get Melvin Upton Jr. That's what led them to get Justin Upton. And, you know, there was some success with Justin. It's a swing and a miss when it came to Melvin. And then obviously Dan Ugla's decline made the Braves so left-hand heavy a couple of years ago. I just don't know if you want to jump right back into that boat. Yeah, shout out to Melvin Upton, uh, by the way, who's having a fantastic season somehow uh, from the ruins. Not so much in Toronto. Yeah, that's true. It has not, has not gone so well after he's been traded, but the San Diego part was a nice renaissance. But yeah, I, I totally agree with you across the board. And it was one of those rare uh, spit-take moments when I saw the uh, the Heyman tweet about... Um, about NCR 10, Voltanevich from McCann. That was one of those uh, where it was it was clear why that deal did not come to fruition when that was the asking price. Um, before I before I let you go, Grant, I, I need to ask you, and we should end on a, on a positive note, and that's with Freddie Freeman. Uh, Freeman, I mentioned before, uh, is having his career best uh, power season currently at the time of, of this recording. Has a 531 slugging percentage, uh, 22 home runs, and only 115 games, and he's already surpassed. His uh, his his WAR total from last season, uh, you know, it's, it seems like a, you know, a lifetime ago when we were actually worried a little bit about Freddie Freeman early in the season uh, after a slow start, but he's basically been on a tear now for about four months, uh, at least three months, and uh, you know, is this a, is this a new norm for Freeman? I guess is the question. Are you are you expecting him to be a 500 plus slugging guy moving forward? Because that, that'd be really nice to see in the middle of this lineup, for, especially given the fact that he's going he's about to start making a lot more money uh, in the next couple of seasons. I think there's always been a contingent, and I think that the Braves front office, at least when they gave him that deal, was under the impression that he is a guy that could slug around 500. He is a guy that could hit more than just 20 home runs. Is he going to hit 30-plus every single year? I don't know about that, but he is a guy that is on pace this year for 40-plus doubles and 30-plus homers, and for some reason, he's decided to start hitting triples, which is exciting, but something that's certainly not sustainable. Give me those wheels, uh, two- Freddie. Show off the wheels. It is. <laughs> and he's stealing bases. He's on pace for a career high there. I mean, it's it's really a, a breakout season for the speed merchant we didn't know we had. But yeah, when I look at Freeman, I mean, he's a guy that, yeah, there were tons of questions about him in spring training. And folks, I remember after the first couple weeks of the season, I can't even count how many tweets I got that were, yeah, they need to just shut him down. He needs to get their wrist surgery. It's done. It's so on and so forth. It's it's not. It wasn't. He wasn't hurt. He wasn't dealing with that. It, it may have been residual mentally. It may have been physically. He needed more work. It may have been a number of different things from not having a normal winter. But it was certainly not that he was just trying to put off surgery to delay the inevitable, which is a tweet I got so many times. Um, but now you see this year, it's been a roller coaster at times. There's no questioning that. The strikeouts on pace for a career high 180 punch outs, but also on pace for 31 homers. The RBI aren't there because he really hasn't had a lot of guys getting on base in front of him until recently. But he is a guy that I do think can be a middle-of-the-order bat and a guy that can be worth the contract, but he's going to have to produce like he is this year, 
maybe on a little bit more of a you know steady basis, if you will, as opposed to the peaks and valleys. But you look at the career norms before, he's a guy that you could count on to hit about 280, maybe more. He's a guy that could hit 20 homers. He could, he's a guy that could drive in 100 runs, hit 40 doubles, do a lot of different things. And I think he's a little bit underrated when it comes to the work he does around the first base bag. So I'm pretty comfortable with Freddie Freeman moving forward and the idea that he could have a little bit more power. Interested to see how the new park plays. I think it's going to be a little bit more fair to hitters, especially in the power alleys. It's going to be 10 feet uh, shallower in both right and left center field. So that's a huge plus. But overall, if he's healthy, I think Freddie Freeman is going to perform and be worth the money that he's going to be paid. And I think that's a good sign. And I think we're seeing something special this year in terms of all the questions that he had to deal with for the entire winter, the entire second half of last year and the first month of this year have really seemed to get a lot quieter when it comes to the kind of numbers that he's put up this year. And I think that's a huge plus. I think it makes him a little bit more comfortable, breathe a little bit easier. And, you know, with Matt Kemp hitting behind him now, that can change the dynamic of Freddie Freeman's um, production moving forward. And that's exactly what the Braves wanted. Somebody who was a power threat that could leave the yard behind him, like Justin Upton, that could give Freddie Freeman a more comfortable um, role in that he doesn't have to feel like the weight of the world is on his shoulders every time he goes to bat that he has to do something because otherwise who in the world knows what's going to happen in this lineup. Absolutely. And, you know, I think the big thing about the RBIs you mentioned is, is, is big, you know, a lot of times on Twitter, I'm sure you get this, people will complain about Freddie's lack of RBIs and it's like, Hey guys, people have to be on base. Uh, and when the, when the team hits, you know, less than ideal guys like, you know, Eric Ibar, Daniel Castro has been hitting second at, at times this season. Yeah. People have to be on base in front of you get RBI. So we should probably, this is, this is not a sabermetric, uh, you know, deep dive podcast necessarily right now, but uh, don't worry about the RBIs. It's the cliff notes with Freddie. Freddie's going to drive in guys if they're, if they're on base and they just haven't been on base this year. Yeah, I mean, I've heard, number one, oh, we're all the RBI. And then I've heard, oh, well, he's terrible with runners in scoring position. Oh. And that was true <laughs> over the first six or so weeks. But you look at some of the best players ever. There are some years where they're just in a zone. They hit 350 with runners in scoring position. They, it looks awesome. They drive in 140 runs. And, you know, these are guys that probably end up in the Hall of Fame. But either way, they can have a year where they hit 220 or 240 with runners in scoring position. That's just the way it goes. It's a volatile situation. There is... I don't know. I mean, clutch gene may be something that you can apply to David Ortiz, but even he fails seven out of 10 times, you know, in those situations. So it, it is what it is in that regard. But I, I posted this, uh, this tweet a couple of days ago and now he's, he's moved up, uh, out of the, the lowest possible, uh, bracket that he was in, but guys who've hit 30 homers and driven in the fewest amount of runs. And, uh, I found two seasons in particular, that were 30-plus homers and 64 RBI. One of them was Rob Deere in 1992. I sent that over to Jason Stark. He really liked it. The, because great, the he's, great Rob Deere, too. Yes, that's, that's a yes, fantastic stuff. Any, any, any list that has Rob Deere at the top, he was all about. So um, got a nice push on Twitter on that. That was a lot of fun. But just finding you know, cool, quirky things like that uh, is, is kind of fun. But, yeah, Freddie's he's going to do his thing. And it's all about setting that lineup on top of him. And like we talked about earlier, you got Enciarte, you got Malik Smith, you got Ozzy Albies. All of these are guys that can hit in the one and two spots. Dansby Swanson's another guy that can hit in the two spot. And it all depends on what you do with the other positions after that. But you're going to have options of guys that you hope are going to be able to perform. If they do, I think Freddie Freeman's going to perform. Then the question becomes, what are we going to get out of Matt Kemp? And who's going to hit behind Matt Kemp? Because spots five through eight, who knows what exactly is going to be there and in what order. 
for sure there's a lot of uncertainty and things that have to be sorted out. But uh, thanks again for your time today, Grant. I appreciate it. Please tell the people where they can uh, find your stuff on Twitter, on the radio, uh, your writing, anywhere else. Plug, plug yourself good and well right now. All right. Uh, well, you can find my show on 92.9 The Game on Sunday nights from 6 to 8. It's called Around the Big Leagues. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. You can follow me on Twitter at Grant McCauley. That's G-R-A-N-T-M-C-A-U-L-E-Y. I do write on occasion when I do. It's on 92.9thegame.com, but typically that's been a little bit more early in the season, primer stuff. But I am going to do an end-of-season uh, top prospects within the next couple of months. I haven't exactly put a hard date on that yet, but I'm looking forward to doing that. And it's been quite a season for Braves prospects, so that's something to uh, be on the lookout for. Uh, when it comes to that. But yeah, around the big leagues on Sunday nights on I-29 The Game, that's my big thing. You can find it on iTunes. Uh, absolutely. I, I, would, I would certainly recommend listening to that and just following Grant, all Grant's work. He's one of the most plugged in guys in the Braves around. And uh, again, Grant, I appreciate your time today, man. Hey, you're very welcome. Enjoyed it. Uh, that will conclude today's podcast. Please uh, stay tuned for next week's episode and uh, follow us on Twitter at Talking Chalk and follow me at BT Roland. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, tell your friends, do all that fun stuff, and uh, thanks as always for listening.